Hello and welcome to another edition of the Public Affairs in Practice uh, podcast. Um, for this uh, episode, I'm so pleased to be joined by uh, Paul Gerard of the Co-op uh, Group. Um, now, I had the privilege of, of listening to Paul talk about some of his work with the Co-op at a PRCA conference uh, a couple of years ago, and I, I thought he'd be an, an ideal uh, person to to have on the podcast to have a chat about that work and and Handy's role uh, more generally. So, Paul, look, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, delighted to be here, Stuart, and thank you very much for the invitation. No, pleasure, pleasure. Look, I, I, what I really want to start, because you've got a hugely interesting background, Paul. How did, how did you find yourself uh, at the co-op, and, and was, was public affairs always something you uh, wanted to do in your career? Well, um, I, I spent 20 years in government, uh, the last sort of 15 at very senior level. So I've always worked with politicians, with elected representatives, you know, in Westminster or elsewhere. Um, I got to a point... Uh, you know, and, and I worked in customs, I worked in the Treasury, I worked in HMRC, the, the Home Office. Uh, I got to a point in about 2016 for a couple of reasons. Um, personal work-life balance, I'm Manchester-based, but I was spending two, three, four days in London and I had a, I had a young family, my daughter was probably about 13 at the time, my son was about four. Um, so, was, you know, that wasn't working for me. And also, if I'm, if I'm honest, as a public servant, I didn't really like the direction of the austerity measures that were currently in place because I was fun, fundamentally about public service did the delivery. And when a civil servant has a problem with the direction of the government of the day, that's the civil servant's problem. <laughs> the government of the day have got the, the mandate they won at a general election. And so it was time to go. So look, I I, I, I decided I'd done my, tw my, tw my 20 years, I wanted to change. Uh, I looked at a number of organisations um, and I felt there's a real value alignment with the co-op, um, the kind of business it is, it's membership structure, it's, it's organisation. And I sort of wanted to use the skills that I'd learned and the knowledge that I got from working in, tw in 20 years in the heart of the government. So public affairs seemed a sensible place to start. And, and are particular skills that you think you've brought from that civil service, extensive civil service background into public affairs that maybe makes you slightly different or brings you a different edge to the way that you do your public affairs? Um, I'm, I'm always slightly surprised, and more honest, Stuart, that the proportion of public affairs professionals, certainly senior ones who have spent who have spent a lot of years in the civil service is quite it's quite low. There's not that many people who spent who've been at senior levels in the civil service and then senior levels in public affairs. That was like surprising me. I guess you know, I think there's two things there's in the Stuart. There's there's a knowledge piece, you know, I spent tw twenty years I've worked with countless ministers, countless cabinet ministers, countless spads. Uh, I know how they operate, I know what 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 worries them, what excites them, what gets them Annoyed, you know. I spent twenty years do, 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 doing that, so I understand what ministers and special advisors and policymakers want. Um, I've taken legislation through through the house. I've taken lots of primary. I've taken secondary. I've taken, um, you know, I've, I've engaged with the parliamentary process, both legislative and scrutiny. I've given evidence to select committees a dozen and more occasions while I was a civil servant, um, and and therefore I, I understand very graphically the way decisions are made in government and the way government interacts with par with parliament and the legislature. So there's a knowledge piece. I guess in terms of skills, look, you know, uh, I, I worked on every budget and fiscal statement from twenty from 1997, Golden Brown's emergency budget of that summer, right the way through to 2016. Um, so I understand policy. I've done lot, lots of policy work. I understand how all that's developed. I think that helps in a public affairs environment. In fact, I think it's critical communications 
And I guess the most important ones as a civil servant is that you are trying to manage lots of stakeholders. And that can be tricky. They can be internal, they can be ministerial, they can be official, they can be cross-departmental, they can be business, they can be lobby groups. You're managing stakeholders. And if you can't do that, you won't be successful as a civil servant. And I think that, again, is probably the biggest skill that I, if, if I have it, I bring to my public affairs with that ability to manage stakeholders. That's a very good point you raised, actually, Paul. Which is, which is that, yeah, very often in public affairs, you know, consultancies and in house as well, love a, a you know, love an ex politician or, or somebody that's worked for their political party or an advisor or something along those sort of lines. There's, there's less of that movement from the civil service across. There's a few that I can think of, you know, primarily yourself and one or two others. But it's, you know, it's, it's the, you know, the stakeholder that I always say, you know, is you know, arguably the most important is not the politicians, it's actually the civil servants, but it makes it slightly surprising, therefore, that there's less movement between the civil service and, and public affairs. I, I, I think it is. Um, um, I, I understand, you know, ex-frontline politicians bring a, a, a very personal understanding of what drives politicians, I get that. I think there's a danger, I think, and I think there's been a, a move over the last few years to sort of get people into the public affairs profession who understand the Labour Party in particular, and I understand that, that as well. I, I guess in a sense, civil servants do that on both sides, because civil servants work with the government today. I've worked with a Conservative government, but I work with the Labour government, I work with the Coalition government, I work with the Conservative government. That's what that's what, that's what what you do, and I think it's a great skill. Um, I, I also think, actually just thinking about it, I hadn't really thought about it before you just asked you, I, I guess one of the things that all public affairs professionals will have to do uh, is give pretty difficult messages to um, the C-suite um, and to the, and to the board, etc. You know, and I think that the, the first thing I was told when I joined this, this, the, the civil service in customs and excise was our job was, was to speak truth to power. And, and you had to do that on a regular basis and I did it on a regular basis. And therefore that sort of helps you in that relationship with particularly when you're talking to your chief exec or your chief finance officer or, or your board chair, that that experience of speaking truth to power, telling the, the chancellor or a minister that X or Y is not a good idea, is pretty good training to be honest with you. That's a very you know you're right. That's a really important skill and and one that not everybody has, frankly. Um, yeah, um, and, and in particular. Um, the campaign that you know you were talking about uh, at the PLCA conference that I, I, I first met you at um, was the, was one around uh, protecting shop workers, which I, when you were talking about, I thought was a masterclass in public affairs. Frankly, I think you know, absolutely, <laughs> no, 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 I, you know, richly deserved. Can you can you just tell us a little bit more about that work? Maybe some of what you did and and some of the outcomes as well. That would be that would be hugely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the the sort of the, it's a. Uh... Uh, we were talking about football just just before we start. We started. It's sort of been a it's been a game of two halves in the sense that <clears throat> what I described at that PRCA conference, it was the public affairs conference in 2022, I think, um, was around work we did between 2018 and 2021 to try to get um, a violence and abuse against shop workers um, taken more seriously by government and to be greater statutory. Pre- protection that ran from about 2018 to about 2021 and it worked you know there is now a standalone offence in Scotland through Daniel Johnson MSP and we um, as a direct result of the campaign that the co-op and you know I think the co-op provided leadership to the whole sector on this we also got a change to the, in, to the police crime sentencing courts bill in 2020 
two, it will, it, it, it would have been, and that was about, sorry, 2021, and that made attacking a shot work an aggravated offence. But I wonder, actually, we've sort, of, we've sort of got back on that horse in the last four or five months, and that's been a really interesting process, because whereas the first campaign was about legal protection, that's what we're looking for, and it, therefore we were targeting the lawmakers, members of Parliament. What we've done in the last three or four months is actually isn't so much about the law as about how that law is used. And therefore, the, our, our target was a slightly different group. It was MPs because they're influential, but actually it was more police and crime commissioners. It was more police chiefs. Now, we sort of started that work in the end of July, and it was around the lack of police support has driven levels of crime in stores um, at levels nobody's ever seen. My colleagues who've worked in retail for 30 years have never seen anything like we've currently seen in the first nine months of this year, the corp alone saw 43% rise in theft. And that theft isn't people stealing to feed themselves. That theft is, is by prolific and persistent offenders who are stealing huge volumes of product. They're coming in with holdalls, with wheelie bins. They're, 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 they're coming in with rucksacks to steal huge volumes of product for resale. Now, what we were looking for is... and. So, so, so there's that increase in crime alongside our freedom of information request that we did at the start of the year said that the police don't turn up in 70% of cases and we only report serious incidents. And I think the, the, the combinate, and that's a risk and reward issue. In my civil service career, I was in law enforcement. Acquisitive crime is, is about risk and reward. What risk are you facing for the re reward you can get? And what, and what we felt was that there was no criminal justice risk for these individuals, which is why it's gone up so, so, so much, even though we're spending literally the secretary spending over a billion pounds a year. So we we, we started in July about what, what, how can we get change? How can we get the police to take this seriously? And we we went through a, a process that will be familiar to lots of public affairs professionals. But I think the way we did it clearly cut through. Um, I, you know, in, in the space of four or five weeks, I did a, we got about 3,000 media uh, mentions. I did the Today programme I've done this morning. I've done GMB. I've done... Uh, BBC Breakfast, I've done LBC, I've, I, I've done, I, I don't think there's a thing that, that we've not done. And I guess at the heart of it was, was a couple of things when we launched in the July. Number one was data. We had two points of data, 43% rise in, in theft in our, in our stores, and 70% um, of the time the police don't, don't turn up. Those two pieces of data were really hard, hard hitting, particularly when you then combine it with colleague experiences either through colleagues being interviewed or CCTV footage. And what the CCTV footage allowed us to describe, because it's true, is a level of lawlessness on the British high streets that was not being tackled. Now, we started on the 27th of Jan, what, and we were very much targeting the, the audience that was MPs, but it was also the public, and it was the police. What was interesting is that when we launched that, um, and I started that the day we launched. I remember it distinctly because it was the twenty seventh of J July at five twenty to do wake up to money. And I didn't finish until I think I did the world tonight on radio for about half past ten. So it was a long, long day. Wow. But what was what was interesting is that is that by the Saturday the police had come out and said this isn't true. By the week after, the police said the Home Secretary had come out and said, "No, the police are going to follow every reasonable line of inquiry in relation to to retail theft." And I think we got there because that combination of data, uh, that combination of um, human stories and images, 
combined with an intensity. We didn't turn any media down at all. We did every single media that was offered to us, no, no, no matter what the time and, and who it was from local radio and local TV all the way up to the, to the nationals. And that then carried on over the, over the summer. It, it, I think we provided the, the permission for other re- retailers, Tesco, jo- John Lewis, to come out and say, yeah, we're facing a similar problem. We took it through to party conference season in September. I was on a panel with the policing minister. I was on a panel with the shadow policing minister at Labour uh, and policing crime commissioners. And what was remarkable to me is on the 27th of July or the day after the, the police were denying there was a problem, by the 23rd of October, the police had published a retail crime action plan that committed to attending. And I think the reason we got there is it was, there was data, it was the police's own data, the Freedom of Information, as well as our data. It was human stories, and then it became a groundswell because it allowed others to put their heads above the, the parapet as well. I, I didn't expect us from 27th July to, July to the 23rd of October in three months to go from the police not taking it seriously to the police publishing a, a, a retail crime action plan. But I think it's testimony to the work that we did and the way that the sector then all weighed in behind. I, I, I certainly, you know, from an external perspective, when I was, I was looking at it, because obviously I heard you speak in the previous conference and then, uh, you know, when, when this latest campaign started, I was paying, not sure, particular attention, but I was certainly paying attention to, to yeah. what was going on. And I think, uh, you know, certainly with the uh, your colleagues, those have the frontline staff talking about you know their experience. It was was incredibly powerful, and you could see that on the media appearances, and uh, you know, and 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 the CCTV. So you could actually see it. So here is a real person talking about their experiences, and and sort of even if you don't believe that person, here's some footage, and those two together means it's pretty incontrovertible evidence that this is a problem that 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 needs to be taken seriously um and then I, you I, I, it's coming in behind you as well yeah and I, I think it's always a good test for the first freshmen <clears throat> the number of times particularly in those first few weeks were talking to the media and the look of absolute surprise and horror i remember you know this is a bit name droppy but you know um i did this morning with holly willoughby and dermot or o'leary and a genuine look of horror on their faces that wasn't staged. They couldn't believe what they were seeing, seeing and what they were hearing. It's always a good test if that's the response from the media or, or indeed politicians, you're on to something. Because it's the, I didn't know that moment. And if they didn't know that moment, then you've got them. And I think that's the thing that really, the, I don't think people appreciated what my colleagues are facing every day, not just in terms of the criminals, but at the time, the response from the police. So, you know, one one of the one of the um, colleague voices that I always put in, I put into, into the interviews that, that I did, and I, said, I did loans, was a colleague who was who had three armed men masked in her store, stealing all the vapes, spirits, 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 and alcohol. When she rang the police, the police on nine nine nine, the police told her we won't get there by the time they're gone. So the next time, ring one oh one. 101 is by definition the non-emergency line. My colleagues were being told to ring the non-emergency line for an armed robbery. And I think that kind of story and that kind of reality is what made people go, oh, wow, I didn't know that, I didn't know that, that that happened. And that went from journalists and interviewers right the way through, frankly, to government ministers. That That is a, a, a shocking story. It is. And it's, it's so <laughs> uh, 
and 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 yeah shocking surprising worrying uh and you can see why the police uh, as you say you know the pressure that they obviously came under but pretty immediately to go from a position where it's like you know you're basically you're talking nonsense through to an, an action plan within the space of of three months they must have recognized that pressure from the stakeholders from the media appearances etc but they wouldn't have done that without that campaign I, th- I think that's right and and it was it i mean there was an interesting point throughout the campaign about some of the tone we said you know so you know, as I said before, I was in government for 20 years. At least 10 years of that was in law enforcement. I'm a law enforcement officer by training. I'm an excise man. My brother's an ex-copper. He was a police sergeant. I've got no interest in just slagging off the police. I mean, the truth is, I think they're hugely stretched. Yeah. But the truth is also that this was news to them. The fact that when I, when I provided the Freedom of Information data, their own data back to them, you know, senior police officers were literally, I didn't know that. And I'm not criticising them for that because if you're, if, if you're a chief constable, you've got a huge job job, job, job to do and you've, and you've got, and, and you're very stretched. But I think, you know, this was something the police had taken their eyes off uh, because, they're, because they're very stretched. I think they deserve credit for having seen and, and got the data. And, you know, and in the words of a famous man, you know, once the facts change, I, I change my position. They did so. And I think the police deserve great credit for that. We've now got to help them to implement the action plan because an action plan's pointless unless it's action action on on the ground. Yes, yeah, you're right. It's it's also interesting that their immediate reaction was this isn't a problem. Um, yeah, as uh, you know, sort of it, it sort of provides some questions sort of institutionally, uh, and I know the police have been through obviously various uh, challenges and issues over the years uh, which continue to come come forward. Um, almost a little bit like they don't like being put under too much pressure but actually frankly that's the pressure you rightly applied and, and others rightly applied which led to that change and and, I, and actually i think one of the um and i remember you talking about this in in the talk was the work that the uh or the role the trade unions played uh as well um you know in this as well but yeah and there's an interesting thing here i think Stuart, for all first questions um we will all have objectives that for our organization but for a campaign like this, if we'd kept the organisational ego, and what I mean by that is the co-op gets the glory, we wouldn't have achieved anything. The reason we got some, I absolutely believe, and the grocer, which is the food retail re- retail's bible, said it was the co-op that changed the conversation. I, we absolutely did. But what was critical then is there's no point in just the co-op banging on about this. You needed other people, you needed other voices, and, and suddenly you had, I said, other retailers came in, so it became a retail sector thing you have the union so it's not just the bosses talking about this it's the union talking about it's not just the public affairs director it's it's um dave the store managing leads who's talk, talking about it to the media it suddenly becomes not a, just a single voice that partnership that coalition that we created that's the thing that really got it all the line and i if i remember to the first time around when we got the legislative change the last open letter we wrote to the prime minister december 2020 something like that um had a hundred retail CEOs sign it. So I think as a public first question, if you prepare to lose your ego and you and particularly actually probably more relevantly, your organization is prepared to lose its ego, then then you can deliver. If if it's if you only make it about your business, then it's just a vanity exercise. You're just looking at looking in the mirror and thinking you look beautiful. If you, if you want to get change, you've got to create a coalition. So it's a number of voices, not just yours. That's a 
again, you've, I think you've highlighted one of the, from an external perspective, I think one of the key successes, because again, you know, during this, you know, this last summer, it started with yourselves, but then it was interesting. You mentioned Tesco and John Lewis, and I'm sure there were others as well. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, probably Asda Morrison, maybe others as well, all came in behind it. And then all started to tell their own stories and bring their stuff in, um, you know, as part of those conversations. Um, and, and again, you know, back to that PRCA talk that you gave, I thought it was, you know, hugely impressive. And it, it, I think it's that lack of ego, not just about the organisation, but as a, as a public affairs team. So when you gave that talk, uh, yes, you did some of the talk, obviously, but actually even there amongst public affairs professionals, it was your colleague that came in and she talked about, you know, her direct experience of of, of the violence, um, why the original legislation and getting securing that was, was so critically important and, and her experiences of then being involved in the campaign. So it's quite nice to see, uh, you know, why she thought it was useful as a sort of non-public affairs person, you know, a, a, a in speech marks, apologies, you know, normal shop worker, yeah. that's her day yeah. job, coming in behind it and being involved and enjoying it as well, I, I got the impression. Yeah, and, and I think there's a really interesting thing about, because I think public affairs professionals are by definition are often externally looking, and that's right, because that's what they're to do. What's interesting about this campaign is that it was something that was very, very real to my colleagues on the shop floor of the court, my 50, 60,000 colleagues. But what this did is alongside this, not so much in this route, although we haven't finished yet because there's some PCC ele elections happening in May, is we, we, we gave our colleagues agency. We helped them become campaigners. We, we helped them write to their local MP, write to the prime minister. I think we had 35,000 colleagues wrote to their MP demanding a change to the law. That agency, that a really good public affairs campaign, if you want to create it amongst your colleagues. I can't tell you what that did for our colleagues' sense of control, because actually when someone's coming in the door with a baseball bat, you haven't got a lot, and the police aren't turning up, you haven't got, you haven't got any control. Just beginning to give them a semblance of control, I can have my voice heard, I can say something. That agency internally was hugely powerful. It was the right thing to do, because my colleagues don't deserve this, but actually, the, as a byproduct of the way we did this by them driving it as much as us meant that they had agency, they had a voice, and that yeah. began to give, give them that little bit of control. And with those PPC elections coming up next year, obviously, I mean, it's sort of different from the general election, obviously. Um, mm. But do you target those those PPCs as uh, as candidates, as sort of sitting PPCs? How do you approach that sort of you know, challenge to make sure that this keeps on the agenda of whoever wins those sets of um, police and crime commissioner uh, elections. So it's been a we're recording this in uh, on the in 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 sort of early December. December we we had it was also doors respect from shop workers week. Um, sorry, respect for shop workers week uh, in, in middle of November, and during that we had about sixty key decision makers come so we had MPs with a shadow policing minister we had the shadow attorney general we had um we were supposed to have the home secretary visiting but um she, she changed jobs on the Monday, so that's been postponed but she's she's due to come in 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 the new year uh we had the home secretary visit visit a uh, sorry the shadow home secretary visit a coke store so we had lots of important MPs visit but we also had uh, from memory, about a dozen sitting PCCs visit and about five or six prospective candidates visit. So we had them visit. Now, in a sense, we'd got the Retail Crime Action Plan. We'd had this in train for a while, the Respect for Shop Workers Street, but we had them in. And 
And they came in and they heard from our colleagues. We briefed them, but then important, they heard the voices from our colleagues, what our colleagues found in a store local to them in their patch. When we get towards May, we will be writing to every police and crime commissioner candidate to ask them what, what steps they're going to take, what commitments they will make to make sure that the retail crime action plan um, actually is delivered. So absolutely, and I fully expect my colleagues to be writing lots of letters and emails asking the local PCC, I'm a voter, what are you going to do to protect shop workers and ensure that the Retail Crime Action Plan is published? And around that time, Stuart, we'll, we'll, also, we'll also be publishing uh, new research from Emmeline Taylor, a critical part of all our campaigns, data, colleague voice, independent research that says this is this is the reality. Emmeline Taylor is probably the leading voice on retail crime in this country in terms of academics. She's a professor of criminology at City University. Emmeline's got some research coming out in January, which again will just add add to the to, to the intellectual weight of the, of the debate. I think a useful reminder that you know that old. Uh, I'm not sure it was Tip O'Neill, the American politician that said it, but you know the all politics is is local, and and yes. also another reminder that. It's not just about MPs and Parliament and Westminster, or even in this instance, you know, civil servants. I mean, obviously, you've, you've highlighted Paul that you know the, the, very much the focus on on the police and uh, you know how to influence their the way that they do their job and the seriousness they take it, uh, but also different levels of government. So PCCs as a as another bit of democratically elected government that frankly are hugely important for this particular issue. Yeah, and and. It comes back to that sort of tone thing. One of the conversations we had as we were about to go in late July was, you know, how tough are we going to be on the police? As a person, I've got no interest in, in, in slagging off the police for the safe circle. I think they've got a tremendously hard job to do. But at the same time, we had an issue. And I think what we were able to do is, in tone terms, yes, talk about the problems, but also highlight a few police forces, Nottinghamshire, Essex and Sussex, and the PCC down down there is a Conservative PP, PCC, uh, KIT Bourne, who's done a fantastic job as the retail crime leader for PCCs. So we were able to, so, you know, it, it's fine to say they're not doing it. The question you always get is, okay, so what do you want them to do? And I say, I want them to do what Nottinghamshire, Sussex and Essex have done, because they're doing it really well. It's not perfect, but they're taking it seriously. And Katie Bourne's made a difference. So I think understanding where, in a public affairs campaign, where to engage that's going to give you the result you want and Honestly, 99 times 100, it isn't a bloody prime minister. It'll be somebody else. And, you know, yeah. and the PCC, as you say, is a part of that democratically elected infrastructure. It's got a critical role in making sure the police do what she, in that terms, Katie and Sussex, is elected, is, is elected on the basis of. Yeah, no, that's, uh, and, 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 uh, and again, as you've already alluded to, Paul, at something positive rather than just saying, you know, it's not being done, but here Absolutely. are examples where actually it does work really well and proves it can be done. Um, yeah. Rather than sort of just a, a highfalutin, you know, I don't know, changing behaviour that frankly isn't doable. It, it, it's practical and, and it happens now. Yeah, it does. And I think, I think in fact, one of the lines we used was this is a solvable problem. This has been solved before. I guess the other thing that, just reflecting on the campaign, I remember doing an interview on Five Live with Ellen Skelton, and it's probably one of the toughest in interviews I had because she really pushed hard on well, what the business sector did to do in. So I think when you're asking for things, and you know, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll have seen this throughout your career, when you're asking for things of government, or in this case, the police, you've got to make sure that you're 
you've got a level of credibility that comes from the action that you've taken, the investments that you've made. And therefore, a critical part of our narrative was, it's a problem. Workly, it's our job to to keep in the first responsibility to keep colleagues safe and shops safe is ours, but we need police support. And there is something about thinking through as a public affairs professional. Where are you going to, what What can you say about what you've done? Because if you're just throwing a problem over, over, over the fence, then no one's interested and I wouldn't be interested. Yeah, you're right. That's about your behaviour as an organisation, absolutely, and and having and having a solution as well, and having something to say and point to that you know government or you know police in this instance can actually do, as opposed to just saying, well, just moaning. I guess yes, it is. And and, and you know, I, I, and again, this is perhaps comes full circle to the conversation. You know, when when I was in good government, you know, government doesn't have a lot of money for R and D. It doesn't have a lot of time either. Therefore, when when somebody come when some people, some people come used to come in to me and say there's a problem and they tell me the problem, I invariably knew there was a pro- pro- problem. My problem was I didn't know what the solution was. Yeah. And if they're co- coming without a, uh, without a solution or an idea or the willingness to work to work together to fix it, as a senior civil servant, time I would think well, there's no point having another meeting with these guys because they've told me the problem and you haven't got 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 an answer. If I look, look back on some of the things that we did when when I was in government, it was where the groups who came with with a problem came with the idea of an answer. Now, it might not be the answer, but it invariably was part of it. And I think we've always got to remember the civil servants and politicians are looking for help. They're not just looking to be told it's all crap. Yeah. Hey, look, Paul, I, I want one, to ask you one final question, but I've yeah. forever, frankly. So I better not keep asking questions because it will probably, um, I'm sure everybody that's listening will be hugely interested, but it might take up too much of their commute or uh, lunchtime. Yeah. Or, whenever they listen to these things. But, um, you know, across your time at the, the car previously in government as well, is there any advice that you've received or, or anyone, anybody that's particularly influenced you or, or your approach that you'd, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, highlight? I guess um, I'm a great, well, I'm, I'm not a great believer in giving other people advice because I'm not sure I'm the right place to do it. But I will, my observations on, is that I tend, I've learned a lot from people I've worked with, have been really fortunate to work with, and for some amazing people. I guess three things come to mind. One is calmness. I was private secretary to the chairman of customs and excise 20 odd years ago, almost 30 years ago now, a lady called Dame Valerie Strachan. And the thing about Dame Valerie is that she always had a level of calmness because she always said, you can't do do anything if, if, if you're running around screaming. You've got to be calm and think it through. And I think that calmness, A, gets you a better result and B, helps the people that you work with. So I think a bit of advice is have a bit of calmness. And I think some of that comes from perspective. Um, if I think of my, my time in government in particular and in the, and in the co-op, there's been some really stressful days, but you keep a, perspe- keep a, a perspective on how serious those things are. Um, I think that helps. And then I guess the last thing I learned when I left the civil service was you have to have in your career red lines. You have to have things that you won't do. You have to have things that you feel uncomfortable with. And you have to stick to them because if you don't, it becomes it begins to eat away at you. If you are doing things that you have a fundamental clash with in terms of your own values, then that is not sustainable in anything other than the, the immediate term because it will eat eat away at you. So you know, I think be calm, keep a perspective, but when when it's time to go because you can't align your values, you you need to go. 
Oh, I, I don't think I could finish on a, on a, on a more, uh, you know, useful note, frankly. Look, thank you very much for your time today. It's hugely appreciated. And I'm sure everybody will be, uh, you know, looking out for the campaign and, and paying particular attention uh, next time you're on the, you know, various media outlets and <laughs> Helen, Helen Skelton and others. Absolutely. And Stuart, thank you. Thank you for, for your time. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you.